Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'd really appreciate you liking, commenting, sharing, and subscribing if you get any form of value. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today, Anoop. It's great to see you. Alex, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So Anoop, for anyone who's been living under a rock and doesn't know who you are, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, sure, Alex. So Anoop Kira, VP and GM International Attentive. We're a New York-based SMS marketing platform. And my role there is to basically kind of run every region outside of North America. So that's kind of like UK EMEA, APAC as well. Yeah, I've been in sales for about 20 years. God, it makes me feel old. SaaS, probably about 15, 16 years. And yeah, I've been fortunate enough to work for some great startups, managed to go through some great kind of exit events and yeah, work for some great organizations generally. Awesome. Sounds like a very, very fascinating background. So I'm looking forward to diving deep. Let's go back to the beginning first, Anoop, and tell us a bit about how you actually got into sales in the first place. By accident, if I'm completely honest. So it was kind of to put myself through university. So my dad kind of lost his business uh, when I was younger. I wanted to go for uni and so on. Obviously coming from a background, if you come from an Indian background, you probably understand there's a, a pressure to probably come out with some sort of profession. And at the time I was kind of working part-time through sales. At the time it was a part-time job and the company was like an electrical retailer. So kind of think Curry's, but another company back then. And I just started as a cashier and I didn't actually know I wasn't allowed to sell. So one day I'm sitting there part-time and people come in, start looking at TVs. I start asking them questions. And next thing you know, I've managed to sell a TV. And at that point, my manager at the time was like, do you want to kind of do sales? And I was like, yeah, I kind of like this, right? You, you don't get the, the rubbish jobs. You kind of get to, to, to walk around, speak to people. And you got commission, which was amazing, right? Especially back then. And was just love sales ever since. So I kind of finished uni, come out with a, a computer engineering degree. If I'm honest, hated it as in doing the course and kind of thought to myself, this is probably not for me. Uh, and when I came out, a friend of mine that I'd kind of worked with before said, look, I know you, I've worked with you before. You can sell before you kind of find an engineering job. And do you want to just kind of come and work with us? And did that and started in telesales, man. Like that's the, uh, the hard stuff, right? Like just banging out calls having to be resilient. And that was it. Never really looked back and just kind of worked in sales through a number of different roles and, and companies since then. Wow. Awesome. I mean, one of the things you just mentioned with the tele sales is that need to build that resilience and that early muscle. So what I want to explore is what about your early experiences have really been a core staple for you as your career has advanced? I know you've mentioned the resilience piece, but even going back to when you were selling TVs, what were maybe some of the lessons that you can reflect on now that have carried you all the way through to where you are today? Yeah, I think with, no matter what you're selling, I think what I learned really early on was that 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 kind of feature sale like doesn't work. Even if you were selling a TV, it was like, okay, are you going to be watching movies or sport? What room is it going into? Is that way you can actually adapt what you kind of proposed or suggested or recommended to that individual at the time really kind of helped. And that's just true now, right? You about understanding what someone needs and being able to align your product offering to that still resonates. That was a really, really early lesson. I kind of then went and did a bit of yellow pages, like print advertising. And that was like selling to people that had their own business, right? And at the time, when I look back, 
we were selling advertising to, to companies and it was more than an individual's mortgage, right? You think about it this way, to get a full page back then in a directory could be up to 10 grand a year and it had to work. So I think being able to sell effectively and be able to kind of do that with individuals, it became actually easier when you went into kind of the commercial and corporate world because it wasn't actually their money when you speak to someone who's got this, it's they've got a budget, but at the end of the day, they're not going to lose their home if the product doesn't work, right? So I kind of learned that kind of was a, a big lesson there as well. But like doing that early graft really made it easier for me in effect when I did the commercial stuff. And uh, yeah, probably one of the other last lessons was, yeah, one of my first jobs after that was a company called Hayes DX. And we were selling private mail to mail, solu- private mail solutions to legal sector, financial and insurance. If you can imagine, you can't put court documents in the Royal Mail. And yeah, I was very, I was 21 and I got given like this Chancery Lane patch, Central London. And I remember going into some of these large legal firms like the Freshfields, Bruckhouse, Derringer, Clifford Chance, Alan Overy. And I got there and because I had quite a deep voice on the phone that they thought I was a little bit older. And I got there and they'd almost look at me like, is your, is your boss coming with you? And uh, yeah, that really kind of rocked me initially. But what it did teach me afterwards that, A, I need to be credible and B, I need to control that meeting really, really quickly. And the moment I did that, even some of the hardest buyers or or people I engage with soon came around and and then you were in control of the process. Really interesting background. Now, Anoop, I I think when we look at this era, sometimes people describe it as being a little bit softer from a sales culture standpoint. They may be looking back to the the hard and telly sales days and the door knocking and the canvassing. I'd love to get your perspective, having kind of seen a couple of different eras or a couple of different times in that regard. How how important that kind of pace and velocity and maybe slightly more hardened mindset is when you think about operating as a seller today? Do you think that's important or do you think this evolution that we've maybe gone through where mental health and controlling the pace and thinking about those other things, is that really what we should be focusing on today? Good question. It's quite difficult in respect because back then it was just the way it was, right? Like it was just, you didn't know any different. In hindsight, being aware of mental health and so is, is really, really important. And I'm a big advocate for that. But it's about the balance, right? I think we ultimately know that sales is not easy. Yes, it's got its great rewards, but it's not an easy profession. And sometimes it has a stigma. If you tell someone outside of sales, you work in sales, they kind of look at you like, oh, the used car salesperson stroke analogy, which is not always great. I think one of the sayings I always say is there's a, there's no business without new business, right? So the, the world kind of stops. But yeah, I think it's really important now the mental health, but I think that balance is what we need is a combination of like, okay, let's not go too far one way. Let's be cognizant, but ultimately, yeah, people are hired to do a job and we have targets to do and we just need to do it in an effective way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can't kid ourselves. It's tough, right? It's not an easy role. Uh, I often say this is the life I chose when things get difficult, <laughs> right? But at the same time, I, I feel that there's got to be a little bit of something in you that loves it because when times get difficult, you know, you, you start asking yourself, why are you doing what you do? Money only gets you so far. All of these other things only get you so far. If there's not a little bit in you that says, you know what? I love this. You know, there's something in this that I wouldn't want to wake up in this any different. That's how I personally feel every uh, every day. And I know some people will be listening saying, I don't love it, but it pays the bills. And if that works for them, great. But my view is if you really want to be at the top, stay at the top, sustain that position, it's got to be something in you that really loves what you do. Do you empathize or do you see it differently? 
No, for me, I completely 100% agree, especially from my perspective. Initially, you're right. For me, the driver was money, right? Like I told you, my dad lost his business and I wanted to have the things that I'd never was able to have before. And also then for my family moving forward, could I provide the lifestyle I wanted and the materialistic things initially? As you kind of grow and you become more experienced and older, that kind of changes a bit around what's kind of important, right? So that definitely did for me and has done. But yeah, I think... You have to have that passion, right? I think to get up every day to do something and like put 100% in, you need to love what you do, right? And I always kind of say that, like be happy. And I love sales and, and sales leadership and I'm happy in what I do. For me, it gives me so much freedom in different ways. Like just the thought of doing a typical nine to five and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me personally, like the same hour, eight hours every day, like will be tough. Like I really enjoy the ability to speak to new people, new customers every day, new prospects, new team members, different people in different countries all of the time. I enjoy the freedom that a job gives you, right? It's not fixed in the fact that, yeah, I do believe that sometimes if you're good and you, you put in more hours than you should do, that being said, there's an element of flexibility in when you can start, when you can finish and you just do what you need to do to get the job done. And then the financial freedom that it gives you as well. So I love sales. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're already bonding over that point, Anu, which is awesome. So I want to fast forward a bit because you, you've been a sales leader for a long time now, but there must have been a point in which, of course, you made the transition from being out in the field to eventually becoming a leader. So just take us into that point in your career, if you could. Yeah, interesting one. At the time, I was like one of the top sellers, actually, and I kind of thought next step for me, let me get into sales management and... Yeah, it took me a while to get there, if I'm honest. If I look back, I think there was an element of maybe the company and, and the management there were like, well, you're doing a good job. If we kind of lose this person as a seller, should we just keep them in roles? That kind of helped me back. And that's why personally now, a big thing for me is if I see talent, it's all about progressing that talent, career development, and and watching them pass through. And that's a sign for me now of good leadership is if you can grow your people and, and kind of get them to to move through. But yeah, my I finally didn't get did get that management role. I was horrific, mate. <laughs> my first time management, I made so many mistakes. Well, I still make mistakes now, but if I look back, I think I did some typical mistakes. But it was a difficult one for me as well because I actually ended up managing the team I was in. So one minute you're kind of peers and in the kind of circle. Next minute, you're maybe not so much in the circle. And I think there's that balance which we all have as human beings of that innate desire to be liked. And I think at leadership, you can't always be liked, right? I think there's, and that's something you have to just accept. But yeah, I, I went into that role in that team. The part that benefited me, if I'm honest, was I had credibility because I was a top performer. Even if people were like, well, we're not sure whether this guy should be the manager. They, they did listen because they're like, well, he must be doing something right because he's performing really, really well or did perform really well as an IC. So that kind of helped. And that kind of followed me through my career all the time. So one of the first things I do when I go to any organization now is try and close a deal. A, so I can understand real life, what works, what doesn't work, but also show credibility that I'm not afraid to do something that I'd ask anyone in my organization or business unit to do. But yeah, I, I've made the, com the most common mistake I would say when I became a manager of doing the, the ask versus tell style of leadership, right? And I think that the free stripes on my shoulder went to my head quite quickly and I made some mistakes. And over time I learned that I think you, if you do the ask and bring people with you, 
that works a lot better, right? So kind of get people to follow you as opposed to kind of pe push people in the direction you want them to be. Yeah, some really great insights in that, in that Anoop. Uh, one, one of the things I noted in what you said is that you were the top performer and it almost seems like that gave you the entitlement to be able to take that next step up. And there'll be a lot of people listening here that are craving and knocking on that door for management, right? They've been that top performing AE or they're performing really well and they feel that that in itself should give them the opportunity to become a manager. But then there's the other side of the coin where, you know, are they thinking about or prioritise or passionate about developing talent and some of these other things. So the question in all of that is how important do you feel it is to be a top performer as a prerequisite to management? Or do you think there's actually an argument where if you are focused on some of the other aspects that make a great leader, you can make an equally strong case to your company? I'll go with the latter there, right? And I think that whilst top performers can be good managers, not saying they can't, I've seen so many that are. Likewise, you can have people that are not top performers that can be equally, if not better managers as well. And there's things you look for and it's, it's different in case by case, right? Sometimes the best top performers are you kind of go back to like challenge yourself well before that, the the lone wolf that's just out there hungry, just going to go and get the job done, not worried about so much the team and kind of coaching around the team. And then you've got people that maybe not top performers, but you naturally see within them the ability to help others within the team to kind of bring people along and try and share their wisdom or knowledge because they've been in the business longer or so on. So I think top performer doesn't necessarily mean a good leader but I think it's just about being able to knowing yourself I knew in myself really because I told you before my motivation initially was kind of money and success and over time being a top performer I got the opportunity by my management then to kind of say oh by the way do you want to kind of be a buddy to this new starter or do you want to kind of coach people in our team meetings and I started to do that and then the feedback I got, got from colleagues was that was really good I, I implemented that that worked and the buzz changed for me. So I like, know that, that buzz of closing the deal, which is still there, right? I think that never goes away. But over time, I suppose the buzz of like watching people grow and develop became important to me. And at that point, I kind of thought, well, yeah, I really enjoy the idea of leadership. I should give this a go. So I think if you're an individual out there and you're kind of thinking leadership, is it for me? Is it not? I would say don't just do it because you believe it's the right thing to do at a juncture in your life. Like you either should know that your kind of your motivators are changing, you're kind of getting a different buzz from helping people come along. And that's always a good sign, I believe. Awesome. Yeah, all makes a ton of sense. Appreciate that. So in your career, Noop, it seems that you've got a great reputation for landing in companies that are relatively young or early in region uh, and taking them to the moon, right? And you've ended up spending time at some massive companies like a Salesforce, I believe. And then there's been a load of mixed, mixed uh, experiences in between. So how much of that has been by choice versus almost by circumstance in terms of have you just ended up where these opportunities have landed on your lap? Or have you specifically said, I'm chasing this thing and this opportunity then inherently found its way to you? Good question. Need to probably reflect. If I kind of look back, I think I was, a lot of it, if I'm honest, has been right time, right place as well. When certain things started to happen, like if I look at the exact target days, at a time that, that kind of MarTech space, ESPs cross channel was just kind of blowing up, right? And we were riding a wave. And that wave took us all the way to an IPO and then an acquisition shortly afterwards by Salesforce. And Salesforce is an amazing company, right? It's a huge company, 
like leaders in everything they do, great culture, always winning the best places to work. And I was there for a while. But for me, then the driver became, okay, when I try and take a role, I look for something that I don't have already. Like, how do I expand my skill set, my remit to do something I haven't done? And I always kind of knew that I could go and work in this large organization, but at most I'd only have EMEA under my control. And how do I kind of get global control? And yeah, at that point I was thinking, okay, I could be looking and there's an opportunity to, to, to work at a UK-based company, give me full global remit, you know, equivalent of CRO back then. I don't think we even had a title of CRO then. It was like SVP, global sales, how, how the world has changed. Yeah, and I kind of took that because it was like, okay, I'll get to do UK and EMEA. I then get to do APAC in Australia and I get to build out the US, which, yeah, I would not normally get for a US company, right? I'd have to be in HQ to have that sort of kind of global remit. But I really enjoyed the build and maybe it's the, the engineer in me, right? That likes to put the parts together and watch a machine start to operate and function and work really, really well. And once I did that, I think for me, finding those companies that have a really, really good product, I found a good product market fit have understood an element of who their ICP is, they know who the TAM is. And it's like, okay, how do we go and scale this in a different country? And I enjoyed that build. I enjoyed the autonomy. And I just enjoyed being able to look back. And I think, I know legacy sounds a bit strong, but maybe stories are better to look back and say, I was part of that story of going from a company that was X and we took it all the way to Y. Yeah, it's great yeah. self-awareness. And that's yeah. the, the thing that stood out to me there where you're, you're able to look inwardly and say, right, this is who I am today. This is who I want to become. And these are the, the, the journeys and the, the steps I need to take to help me start to pad out who I am to drive the legacy that I want in my life. I think it's a really, really powerful point that everyone should be certainly taking note of. I am as I sit here in this chair. What I want to get a bit more tactical about though, Anoop, is how someone actually goes about doing that, right? Someone might be out there thinking, I want to take that role on. I, I start on Monday, right? Like what does my first week and my first month look like when I'm in this new business, got all this responsibility, limited resource, how do you make this happen? What's the first few steps? Yeah, I think looking back, sometimes when I've done a role and I go into a new role, one of the, the learnings I took was that sometimes something that worked in an organization before may not necessarily work in a new organization that you're in. So you have to be really, really careful. Like don't just assume that the same solution is going to fix the same problem. Okay, times change, things evolve. But for me, I've spoken about this a few times previously, people may have seen it or not, but Kind of look at the, the three P's is a process that I look at when I first come into an organization. First of all, it's just around the people, right? Understand the people you've got within your team that are there. Spend time with them. Understand strengths, weaknesses, motivators, the gaps that you've got as well. So you know what to do with the people and not just your team, but cross-functionally across an organization. So you know you're building the right relationships, especially if you are in a role where you're working for a US company in the uk like you are literally on an island like where i am now i was employee number one out of north america i remember my first day alex super pumped nine o'clock flip the laptop lid open ready to go sound the crickets because the rest of the company's asleep in the us right so get to know the people the second part would be around the product right so i think you need to understand the product how it works what its capabilities are like brand strengths but also where the gaps are right because when you get into sales processes and you kind of uncovering questioning that may work and you may want to do in front of prospects or clients, never want to lead yourself into a rabbit hole or an area that you can't get out of because you've asked the wrong question, like play to your strengths. So understand the people, 
understand the product. And the last one will be process, right? So understand the processes that are in place right now, the processes that are working really, really well, the processes where you see a gap, right? And you're experiencing that to understand, okay, this works really well. However, there's a gap here. And in some companies, when you're you're younger companies, you don't even have processes at the time, right? You have to kind of create those processes off the fly or as you kind of get into that situation. But again, that process that may be in place, like you have to maybe refine that for the market you're in. Because you could have an amazing sales motion that works, say, in the US, and you try to completely replicate that in the UK, and it may not work. So I'm not saying rip up the rule book and rip it all up, like work hard, sorry, work smart, not work hard, but where do you make the key refinements to make it work for you and your region? So I think that's a really, really important part to do as well. Like just look at it, take time to evaluate first, look at the three Ps and then implement that. I love the three Ps. I'm definitely going to take note of that moving forward. One thing it seems, at least Anouk, from your career is that you've made great decisions at great times, right? And that it seems like you've kind of known when it's been a good moment to step in but also a good moment when it's time to step out, right? You spoke a bit about earlier when you went into a market, it was moving really quickly. There was great pace, you know, IPOs, all of these kind of things, great decisions. So if we were in your mind, you know, how do you go about making the right career decision? And equally, how do you kind of know when it's the right time for you to step away and maybe go and look for that next venture? Oh, that's a tough one, Alex. How do you know when it's the right time or you're in the right company? I think you get a feel, right? Like you can kind of see waves. Like if you look at SaaS generally, there's been waves. There's a big one around, like just in MarTech around email. And then you look at there was like AI and, and BI. There's the next hot thing. So it's about almost kind of predicting what may be the next big thing. An element is sometimes just what you, you're used to. So if I look at my, my last role, I worked for an amazing company called Smop. Obviously, they were then acquired through my time there by Marlin Equity to form a new company called Halo, but they were like an employee engagement type cloud. Now, the reason I took that role outside of the great leadership and the CEO, by the way, who's an amazing guy at Smart, was when they told me the vision and the story, I was like, I know this story, right? And the story there was like, okay, if you worked in marketing, you probably know that in MarTech, we've always kind of used the mantra, like if you send the right message to the right person at the right time on the right channel, you're going to get lifetime value and loyalty. And that mantra saw so many companies get acquired in that that first era I was talking about where Adobe acquired ESPs, Salesforce did, IBM did, like everyone wanted to create this marketing cloud. And when Smart told me about the story, they were like, it was around employees. And conversely, the only fundamental change was that they flipped the consumer to the employee. So if I send employees the right employee content, Wherever they decide to work, be it in Teams, be it on their mobile app, be it on desktop, be it on the internet, they're going to be better educated around their role, the part they play in making the business successful, driving productivity. I was like, I know this works. We went through that. Like, all you're doing is just flipping that around. And that was, for me, the reason why I went out of MarTech and went into that role. And yeah, it kind of worked out well. I think, again, a bit of luck because joined that organization and like six months later, the COVID pandemic happened and companies that had, I don't know, 10,000 people in 20,000, lo- in 20 locations went to having 10,000 people in 10,000 locations. They're like, well, how do we effectively communicate with our employees now that everyone's remote? And yeah, our technology just kind of suited that market at the time. And, and that's where us kind of have significant growth and you have the back of that and acquisition. That's amazing. I mean, Anoop, you seem like the perfect blend between great decision-making 
opportunity and a little bit of sprinkle of luck and that I seems think, to be a new <laughs> I think more luck now she actually buy some lottery tickets <laughs> no that's awesome to hear a new so one of the other areas I was really curious about with you is that you know you've come into this company for example being the first on the ground this seems to be something that you've done multiple times in your career but what's of course going to be really important early is making the right early hires because those people are going to be a staple part of the business that you go on to build. So how do you identify the right type of talent profiles that are the right people for for today, but not only today, the people that can also shape your tomorrow? Yeah, really good question. I think for me on that, I would look at it as, I've done it two ways before where I've kind of come in and I had to hire everyone kind of fresh. And whilst that's good and you get to build and shape your team completely to the way you want it, it does impact how quickly you can be effective and hit revenue goals because everyone's new. AEs can't look to potential other AEs in regions and say, well, how do you do this? What's the sales motion? Because everyone's in the same boat. My guidance there would be kind of around, first of all, if you can kind of get a blended approach, like can you bring people over from HQ to work in region that know the product, know the sales motion, and then combine that with new hires that know the market and have contacts and networks within the organizations that you're trying to target, that blend will reduce ramp time and increase time to to goal for, for you in that region. But yeah, when I look at individuals that I'm actually hiring fresh, I think there's a couple of things that probably resonate. I think you kind of got the first part, which is around characteristic traits, right? And that would be everything from, for me personally, someone coachable, are they tenacious? Are they accountable? Actually, one thing I actually ask for every employee that's ever worked for me is, is pretty much two things. One is trust. You have it implicitly to the moment you lose it. And the second is is hunger. Because you can't teach hunger. You can teach everything else. You can't teach someone to be really hungry, to want to wanna succeed and, and be successful. So first of all, it was around characteristic traits. And then second would be around execution experience. And that would be someone been in SaaS. Have they done B2C? Have they been a top performer for a certain amount of time? Have they closed the deals and the size that you're trying to focus? Like, can they do an enterprise sales process? I think that's the combination that I would look for. And ideally in scale-ups, I would put me personally kind of look for that blend of someone that's done a startup because they're used to that grit, that resilience, having that entrepreneurship like mindset. And then ideally someone then who's also had an element of a large company. Because when you work at large organizations, whether you realize it or not, the training's awesome, right? The training's really good processes are ingrained in you and you know really you know how to work with cross-functional teams already so whether that's scs or cs or like any other fun marketing that's been worked out already and you've been working already so that's the combination i would look at characteristic traits and execution experience and ideally someone that's done startup and large corporate Got it. It's a great, great breakdown. And, you know, we've spoken about a lot of the really positive and the fun parts and when opportunity meets luck and all of this is great. And that's also a fantastic breakdown. I also want to know what some of the challenges are, Anoop, because, you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's not always easy building a company or building a region from almost nothing. So what have been the things that have sometimes kept you up at night, the times where things have been tough? Just kind of let us into your world in those scenarios. Yeah, I think one of the the big things there is around having like you have to have a ceo mindset if you're responsible for a region and sometimes you may be aligned to the revenue function of an organization that being said if you're just aligned to that and you have people in the region that are marketing that are finance that are talent 
or other departments, if you don't kind of involve them and kind of create that mini business, what I would always refer to as a startup within a scale up, then it will fall down, right? Because you can't you can't have the blinkers on. So I think that bit around, okay, how do you manage those other functions, even though they may not like they might report into a different matrix, but you're responsible for making that region work. I think that's one. I think the second one is executive buy-in. Or let me rephrase, the execs have already had the buy-in because hence they decided for European expansion or global expansion. But there's a lot of times when throughout the organization, lots of people in that business are throwing ideas and projects. So I would almost say like keeping executive buy-in is not necessarily a challenge, but something you should definitely be on the kind of top of your list because without that buy-in like you're not going to get the support you need to be successful in the region so like that's really really key as well got it yeah it's, it's a fascinating one because as i say these kind of things they're not easy you know it's tough right and 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 you spoke when you talk about some of the character traits the, the drive the tenacity the hunger you need all of that right and you need to also be aware of the fact that you're going to really be going on a journey that will have some amazing high highs but equally it's going to have a number of challenges and i think it's really great advice in terms of making sure that you build a bit of a mobilizing other teams getting other people bought into your, your vision your mission getting people passionate about that as well because ultimately you're all trying to drive towards the same direction with the company everyone wants it to grow but if you're not intentional about rallying those people around that goal and that vision and mission uh, it's not always easy to help you start to scale things right yeah i think just yeah. just to add to that i think one thing that's, that i should probably say and it's i think it's really important is managing expectations at hq okay and the context in that would be by the time a company's decided to globally or internationally expand, they found the product working, they found the product market fit, they've got use cases, and they're like, right, let's go. Right, we want to kind of sell this in lots of countries everywhere. But you have to set the expectations. It's a process, it takes time, your rate of growth is not going to be potentially as high as what they've been doing in the US. Deal sizes could be a little bit smaller, like you're ramping employees up and, and salespeople up. It takes time. I kind of refer to that as like a a great guy called Stephen McIntyre is a partner of Frontline Ventures and he refers to it as kind of success and amnesia and I give him credit for that but it definitely res- resonates because you have to make sure that you're reminding that exec team or HQ that when they first started to sell this product it took time right it took time they made mistakes they had to get gritty they had to get creative in maybe it's pricing or what they kind of offered to get to where they did and it's about kind of just saying look we might need to do some of that good stuff here but trust the process, right? We'll get there. We just need to trust the process. Remember what it took for HQ to get there. Yeah, so you got me thinking on that one and it it resonates a lot, right? And I think it's a really important point there. Now, I want to shift gears onto something because a lot of people will look at the role that you're in now as kind of the dream state, right? The end state that a lot of people might have in their mind. So if we're talking to that person who's pretty new in their career, maybe an SDR today, and they look and say, one day I want to be like a noob or one day I want to be a CRO, you know, how would you advise them to navigate their career from where they are right now to set them up on that journey of getting to these types of CROs and GM and VP plus roles? Yeah, I'll just go back to like the way I kind of thought about it would be the advice that I can give basically because I, I lived that advice. I was kind of very goal orientated and kind of set milestones in play, right? Like what I wanted to achieve by a certain amount of time. Even like what car I want to drive, where I wanted to go on holiday, or what locations, like 
by a certain time in my life. So I think it's about actually having that kind of plan. And people always ask that in interviews, like, oh, where do you want to be in five years? But, and sometimes you feel like people say this, but then did it actually put a plan in place to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do to get there. So I think that's important. But the advice I'd give is, again, go and as you, first of all, don't be in a rush, right? Like there's an element now people just want to kind of fly through their careers really, really quickly. Like for me, it's like, when you move on is when you're in a position where you can do that job really, really well. Because if you try and move on too quickly, you can set yourself up to fail, right? And taste of failure is not nice for anyone. Like everyone, no one likes that. So I say take the time to really understand that role. It's like building foundations on a house, right? Get them solid and then build upon that and then you'll get to the top or where you ever you want to be. So that'll be around that. And look for, as you move roles, like always look for something that you don't have in your tool belt, right, on your kind of armory. So whether it's like, okay, I'm a salesperson and I've done mid-market, right? Now I want to kind of go to, to enterprise. And then if I then, do I want to go to Strat or do I want to go and sell into one region or now I'm going to sell across EMEA? Am I a specialist in retail, but now should I do something in another vertical? So I think it's, that's how what I would look at, expand what you do in every role that you take. Got it. Yeah, I love that point. And I mentioned it earlier. And I think it's one of my biggest takeaways already so far from all of this. And knowing now and you've been a leader for such an extensive period of time, it begs the question, what makes great leadership, right? And so you spoke about the character traits of the the elite sellers and some of the talent that you look out for. What are the characteristics that make up great leaders and great leadership? It was always kind of difficult to answer that question on this side of the table. But yeah, for me, I would probably say, First of all, it's like you need to better empower your team, right? Like when you're a leader, it's really easy to kind of like that, that tell kind of mentality to micromanage. Does that get the best out of people? Do you go and hire just the same type of person? A bit like if you're a football coach, right? It's like being a good leader means, okay, you need to bring the components or the players in that are going to work as a team. So being able to spot what makes a good team is really important as a leader. I think someone that can create culture and inspire, right? I think that's that's huge, that inspiration and belief in building a good culture. Because people need to believe that they can get to goal. Someone that listens, right? Like not just does the, like, this is what you need to do, but okay, really trying to understand what the challenges are, what the blockers are for people in order to be successful. Yeah, and again, just I'll probably finish up with that that empowerment, right? So just being able to, I don't know if we can swear on this, but I kind of look at sometimes a leader, you're, you're, you're a bit of a shit catcher. Right? <laughs> and what you're doing there is you're catching all of that that's coming from above and st- stopping it landing on your team's head, right? Because that way you can, they can go and do their jobs effectively. You can empower them and coach them and you, you kind of buffer that noise, right? But it's also the ability to go and fight for your team, right? Go and have the conversation that sometimes that needs to be had at HQ and stuff and battle in the right time. I'm not saying every time you don't want to be that person either. Right? You need to look at it and say, okay, which ones are the, the, the battles worth having the conversation versus not. But yeah, don't be afraid to go and fight your corner for your team. Yes, uh, go, go into war for them, right? Being on yeah. the front line, which is a, is a really important yeah. point and a valuable point as well. So Anoop, it begs a question at this point for you, really, what your main driving factors are, what your main motivations are. You've spoken a lot about being intentional, about looking at the gaps and then trying to fill them with every move. So I'd love to know more about what gap you were trying to fill in your latest move. And even when you look ahead, like what's driving you? What gaps are you still trying to fill at this point in your career? 
I'm always trying to fill gaps. I'm not fully rounded or polished in any way. Yes, I've had experiences in in different facets, in, in different regions, in different organizations. But right now, I'm very blessed, if I'm honest, to have that experience to do global roles, kind of go through some, some great events, kind of work with some amazing people. I think for me now, it's just like, okay, what motivates me is, okay, how do I really learn how to do this and be able to to do this effectively all the time and, and do it maybe quicker and faster and, and better than I did before and use the learnings that I've had to do it before. And then why are we getting into SaaS tech startups in the first place, right? Like, can we grow the business, take it to where we want to do, have a bigger exit than you've had before, like take a lot more people with you on that journey. And for me now, one of the things I'm always looking at now is, okay, how do I kind of understand more around the kind of VC world and working with VCs and becoming non-exec directors and the bits of my kind of portfolio that I don't have at the moment. Yeah, that, that piece is interesting because I've been looking at it myself quite recently because, I don't know, it just really feels like our space is evolving in so many ways. I, I don't know if you agree, but you even were talking about the CRO role at one point, you know, it was pretty much capped out as SVP and then we've got CROs. We look at companies like Stage 2 Capital, right? And, you know, that's all based on revenue leaders coming together and creating a pretty phenomenal VC firm there. So I, I'd just love to get your broader perspective on just like the evolution of sales or more specifically the evolution of SaaS sales. You know, where do you feel like we're heading right now versus where we used to be, especially because you've seen an era that was very different, right? Hardened, pace, velocity, metrics, KPIs, and telesales. And then now we look at the tools we have available. We look at the roles we have available. I'm kind of turning this into a passionate rant, but I just love to get your perspective on the scene. Yeah, like I think when you, when you looked at SaaS was, when it first started, SaaS was like, what's the cloud, right? Like people didn't know. And how I kind of see it now is it's kind of becoming the norm. Like you look at the S&P in the US, you look at the amount of technology companies that make the S&P 500 bonkers, right? Like anything that goes wrong with tech now, it's like the economies in the US can just, just kind of go down in a heartbeat. So it's becoming the norm right now. And what does that look like? I think what it looks like initially is a load of companies that investors have thought, right, this is amazing, everything's in the cloud, everything's going to be hyper growth, we've seen some amazing performance, and let's put a lot of money into organizations. And then there was that kind of element of, okay, we don't have a lot of SaaS sellers or employees that have been around, because in the grand scheme of things, SaaS is still relatively new, like 20 years, right? Just over 20 years. So yeah, this became this huge supply and demand of like lots of tech companies, lots of funding, not enough people people getting paid extortionate amounts of money as salespeople to come do that job. Now we've got the economic climate that's going to change. I think people now, or SaaS companies, I think where the focus is going to go is from hyper growth to operational excellence. Okay, how can I operate really, really well, really, really efficiently? So at any moment, I could turn around and show that I'm profitable. Okay, that's how I see SaaS going now from, yeah, so I think money will still be plowed in, but I think good companies in the SaaS space will be hyper growth versus being like operationally efficient and being or being able to show a profit quite quickly. But yeah, I think that more and more companies in technology, technology is not going anywhere. I think we're just very fortunate to be kind of be part of this era or the start of something that's going to become the norm. 
We're in the, the best space in the world, as I like to say, right? Wouldn't want it to be any other way. Uh, Anoop, I've only got a last couple of things for you at this particular point. If you've watched any of the previous podcasts, then you'll pretty much know what's coming next. But it's to ask you, if you were talking out there to that person who wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what your best piece of advice would be for that person? Have a plan. Understand, like be self-aware, like understand where you're good understand your areas of development and surround yourself with people that can give you that knowledge as well, right? Don't always try and do it on your own. Don't be afraid to learn. Like I surrounded myself with good mentors because I didn't want to go and reinvent the wheel, ask that advice. But yeah, I would kind of just say, yeah, putting a plan in place to know your, your, your gaps and you'll always have gaps and that's okay. And, and don't be afraid to fail. I actually ask my daughter that every day, actually, what did you fail at school today? I wanted to get her in a mindset where it's okay to fail because if you fail, that's fine. Like just, but keep trying. Yeah, it's really, really powerful. I, I normally always end on that question, but I've got a, one more that I'm going <laughs> to round off with you, Anoop, which is just about your legacy because you spoke about it at the top. And I think it's important just for us to all get a bit of a view around, you know, what legacy does Anoop want to leave? You know, what, what is the legacy? Who do you want to be known as? What do you want to stand for? I know it's changed. I told you it's changed for me a lot. So when I look at legacy, what does that look like? Before it was very much about me what I was trying to drive for, what was materialistic important to me. Having a family now, your legacy, I'd like to think that my legacy is just being a great dad and, and a husband. What do I stand for? I Probably I stand for every regular kid, first generation immigrant, or whose parents have come from struggles, just normal working class that just decided to say, yeah, I'm going to give it a go. And I'm not going to let anything kind of get in my way. And I'll keep trying. I'll take the knockbacks, just try and get back up, learn from it, evolve. And yeah, someone will give me a break if I keep knocking at the door. And that's the way you uh, end the podcast, Anoop. Really, really grateful for you coming on. I hope you enjoyed the experience. There's a ton out, a ton out there to, to go out there and help our listeners. So thanks again for spending some time with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. So I hope all of you have enjoyed listening and watching this episode. Again, if you're watching this on YouTube, really appreciate you liking, commenting, sharing and subscribing. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate that five-star review. And we'll see you on the next one.